I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. I had to stay focused just on, you know, do your homework. One of the things I've always tried to focus on and just be honest with myself about is, you know, I'm not going to be the smartest in the room. I'm unlikely to be the most polished in the room, but I will outwork you and I will (laughs) outprepare you. (laughs) I will know everything I can know to try to make the best decision. Not to be caught up in analysis, but just let's get the facts and let's move forward. Elizabeth Mangan leads Miller Valentine Group as the first woman CEO with strength and personal power. The real estate development and construction industry is one of the most male-dominated. Yet Elizabeth's independent and competitive nature, as well as her calm under pressure, prepared her for this challenging role. While her fight-or-flight approach to life as a child proved valuable early on, she's learned to adjust this response in her career and with her family. She led the company's strategic vision in splitting it into several disciplines and was integral in the company's survival during the real estate recession of 2008 through 2010. Enjoy this great podcast with Elizabeth Mangan. Today I have with me Elizabeth Mangan, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Partner with Miller Valentine Group, uh, based in Cincinnati. She is the first woman CEO of Miller Valentine. The company has offices in Dayton, Cincinnati, Ohio, Columbia, and Charleston, South Carolina. The company began in 1963, so almost 60 years, and it has developed or constructed over 100 million square feet of commercial real estate, as well as 15,000 multifamily units for both local and national clients. It has roots as a construction company, having brought tilt-up or tilt-wall construction to this market many years ago. The company's received numerous awards from many organizations. Elizabeth graduated cum laude from West Virginia University and earned her law degree from Georgetown University and spent some time practicing as an attorney in D.C. and then in Cincinnati as well. She came to Miller-Valentine in 2008. She was named general counsel in 2011. She made partner in the company in 2014, only one of three women in the company's history. And uh, Elizabeth was chosen to head the company uh, and replace Bill Cruel at the beginning of 2018. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Let me kind of go on here. I'm just excited to have you here. Um, the three original partners were Jerry Miller, Jim Walsh, and Dan Valentine. And Dan Valentine, uh, it is now January 2021. Dan Valentine just passed away in December 2020 yes. at 87 years old. He was one of the company's founders and had been working in construction, recruited Jerry Miller. They were University of Dayton students together. And with a third partner, Jim Walsh, they formed Miller Valentine Group in 1963. So. And during my career in my various roles as a lender and a mortgage banker, Miller Valentine has been a longtime client of mine. I was a lender uh, on some of their buildings in the 80s and then for many years as a mortgage banker. And I enjoyed working with Sharon Pennell and Jack Goodwin and Angie Gill. And uh, I've always respected the company highly. It has a strong work ethic um, and how strategic the company is about the future and a big focus on values. So 
Uh, it's been a company with construction roots, probably one of the most male-dominated industries in the commercial real estate area. Um, the company has a history of many men leaders, and it's a big deal that you're leading the company now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> known the company for a long time, and uh, when I saw that you were uh, uh, you know, knighted to head the company, I thought, wow, that is big, that is great, and I know the company has had some spinoffs and things. We'll get into that. But talk about the, what the company does, the revenue, and the growth of Miller-Valentine Group. And sure. welcome. Thank you very much. So as you referenced, there have been some spinoffs. So there's been quite a bit of change at Miller-Valentine since 2016. And I'll call it a recommitment to our roots. You mentioned that we were founded as a general contractor in 1963. But we grew quite a bit over the four generations of leadership. And in 2016, we had become the third largest affordable housing developer in the country and also a very competitive regional general contractor. So I could go on about that, but you probably understand the challenges um, with finite resources. and, And those are human resources and certainly capital, right? And so we made the decision Um, after a a lengthy strategic planning process to recommit to our roots. And that's what led to the spinoffs. It led to a a sort of an an asset management and commercial property management spinoff. It led to the sale of the affordable housing development company, um, about 6,000 affordable housing units and um, affordable housing property management. So then you look at Miller-Valentine, and we have recommitted to our roots, and we are, at our core, a best-in-class general contractor. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of that focus and because of the intentional growth strategies we put in place, um, we're poised to do about $250 million in revenue this year, and that's from your construction company. So for some context, um, for several years, the construction company portion of Miller-Valentine was um, pretty steady at about 85 to $100 million a year for about mm. 20 years. So there's been some significant growth yeah. in the last few years. That's that's wonderful. I mean, that's great, great growth. But what I saw when you split off Miller-Valentine Affordable Housing, the tax credit business, the multifamily, the asset management commercial, and then the core kind of Miller-Valentine, I thought, this makes all the sense in the world. You know, so that the people that have that expertise in those areas can focus on what they do best. And you're not trying to be be all things to all people, people managing things that they really don't have the experience in. It just made all the sense in the world. So now you've got Miller-Valentine Group, 225 people work there right right now, and it varies, uh, but that you can focus on your knitting. You know, you can do what you do best, right? That's absolutely right. And so that is really to to um, serve our, our clients as a best-in-class contractor. We also do real estate development, but we're very focused. Mm-hmm. So historically, um, especially if you were working in our financing, you know that there were multiple products that would have been developed. We're extremely focused on two product types, but in all of our markets, um, we develop climate-controlled self-storage mm-hmm. and luxury multifamily. Mm-hmm. So again, just another, it's about being focused and being intentional and very strategic mm-hmm. about where we're spending our time, effort, and energy. Mm-hmm. At Miller-Valentine, you were charged with a strategic vision, uh, working with consultants uh, about where the company should go, what the best next step would be. 
and you worked with a consultant on that. Um, and in the breakup of the companies, the spinoffs, I should say, the, the strategic vision, you were in charge of that. Tell me about that experience as you're working with, you know, people, partners that have been with the company a long time, maybe some more resistant than others. You know, what, what happened? Okay, so in two, the early 2016, um, the board decided uh, to put me in charge of the strategic planning process to sort of figure out what's next as you're looking at a next generation of leadership and succession and, and where should we really be focused. And we hired an outside consultant to help with the strategic planning process. And I had a team of, I'm going to say, eight to ten folks that were sort of the business unit leaders or other influencers within Miller-Valentine. And that covered the broad range of businesses we were in at the time. You mentioned earlier, boy, that made all the sense in the world, right? So you were sort of aligning, soaring with your strengths, so to speak. Everyone was aligned and focused once the businesses were spun off. But as you can imagine, um, you know, a lot of those businesses have been around for a long time and people had very strong feelings about them. You know, one of the great things about Miller Valentine was it was sort of a family company, but we all know how much difficulty can come with family companies sure. when you're talking about succession and leadership. And and I use the term loosely. There's there's not it's not a family company from the sense of a bloodline, mm-hmm. but it has certainly been around for a long time with a, a lot of um, high value, high performing folks that that were very um, focused on doing the best thing and took what they did very seriously. So it was difficult. It was um, there was a, a management of a lot of emotions. Um, competing interests. And I had to stay focused just on, you know, do your homework. One of the things I've always tried to focus on and just be honest with myself about is, you know, I'm not going to be the smartest in the room. I'm unlikely to be the most polished in the room, but I will outwork you and I will (laughs) outprepare you. (laughs) I will know everything I can know to try to make the best decision. Not to be caught up in analysis, but just let's get the facts and let's move forward. And so that took a lot of persistence and a mm. lot of people management and relationship management Yeah, um, until folks could kind of um, see their way through it and understand that the best thing for all of the business lines and, quite frankly, all of the customers we served mm-hmm. was that we um, were able to divide, spin off, have the right leadership in place and the right focus with each of those companies. And I've um, stayed in contact and remained close to the folks that run the different businesses. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It Everybody worked. is yeah. performing better alone and, and substantially better sure. on their own than they were together. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And what you were dealing with is, from what I understand, is, you know, you're taking this old line company, a lot of, you know, construction routes, and a lot of these partners had developed wealth and they their identity was caught up in this company. And to talk about splitting it off into various, you know, areas, I mean, you came in as somewhat of a, I didn't want to say neutral because you were with the company, but you hadn't been there in all the history. You approached it from a logical standpoint and you're dealing with these people. I know a lot of the guys in that company, they're very bright guys, very bright, very hardworking, and they have a lot of pride in that company. And so what was being recommended had to cause them to be pretty, um, you know, skeptical and emotional, right? 
Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it does come from their their level of intelligence and the level of thought that went into all the decisions that had been made, right? So Miller Valentine was always intentional about when it expanded mm-hmm. and what it did next. And so and and I may have the same challenge in 15 or 20 years to look back and say, you know, those were great decisions and we were going in the right direction. That doesn't mean it doesn't require change and yes. evolution. But that's hard for for everybody, right? It's sort of it's sort of um, required yeah. <laughs> for the human experience and one of the most difficult things we ever do. I think one of the benefits for me, and I was sort of born this way, is I thrive in a, a situation of chaos and change. Mm-hmm. And so I can be a steady person in that scenario because I enjoy it, where other folks might uh, have some reluctance or resistance. So I think I can I can see the world clearly in the midst of chaos. And that's just, I think I sort of came out that way. But I think that was helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing that, that was helpful is I truly, uh, <laughs> I had worked so hard for all the folks that had been there and care deeply, still do, for all of them. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to listen and hear what their experience is and what their struggle is. Try to understand where they're coming from so that you can get to the right solution. I'm saying that as if it were easy. It was not. We no. all had to to work at it and listen to each other and try to understand in order to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, really, really good and not to stereotype, but I think a lot of women can do just what you said, which is I understand the emotion, I understand the personality type, but you see where we're going here and why it makes so much sense, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think you have that um, and I, too, thrive in chaos and change. There was a line from uh, the old uh, series ER where Mark Green said, the reason I like ER medicine is because I like to have power over chaos. And I've used that line. You probably relate to that, <laughs> That's right? That's a great line. I haven't heard it, but I do relate to that. <laughs> to have to try to control it, manage it, have power over chaos. You know, And, and mm-hmm. you think about an ER situation it is trying to have power over chaos and it's the same as the situation that you've dealt with here you know so um you were the uh i just want to go back to this um the fact that you came into this company you were part of the strategic vision and then um i was talking to a couple of people about you before we uh agreed to do the podcast (laughs) or when we had agreed i was talking to jack goodwin and um you know, it was, uh, here's a 50, almost 60-year-old construction company, Bill Cruel, construction background, right? He headed the company for a while, Mike Green. And they all met and said, okay, who's going to take Bill's place? And Jack said it was pretty clear that the best and obvious person suited for the job was Elizabeth, right? Wow. You didn't know that. You probably didn't know that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Uh, and I'm sure there was discussion about, you know, um, being a woman, and I think you you told me that um, somebody said to you that was somebody said, uh, "How are you going to be able to do it as a mom? You're a single mother of three teenagers, right?" I am. <laughs> and how are you going to be able to run this company as a single mom, right? Yes, I was asked specifically how would I manage, um, you know, all of the evening activities and networking that had to happen, and also, you know. 
sort of take care of my children. I will say I am blessed to have uh, a phenomenal co-parenting relationship um, with my ex-husband. Good. And that's, I am, I'm very blessed in that sense. Mm-hmm. So I think we both occasionally take offense to being called single parents because we're very fortunate to have each other. Good. But at the same time, I was surprised by the question that why my status as a mother would impact my ability to be um, the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very surprised by that question, and I realized that I don't know if it was, you know, I'm not sure business is done now the way it was historically anyway. I think there are just as many fathers that wouldn't be able to be at dinner every night um, doing networking because they're coaching or tutoring or mm-hmm. taking care of children as well. So right. um, I was surprised. I was taken aback by the question for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I certainly wasn't going to be held down by the fact that I was a mother and a CEO. Yeah. They're two of my proudest accomplishments. <laughs> sure. No, you should be. And uh, uh, we can't, uh, we talk about work-life balance. You talk about work-life integration, right? I mean, this this is not easy to do. You have to have another person helping you with kids. And that was my husband um, as we raised our kids. And um, but uh, you can have it all. You just, it's just, it's not a balance really. It's like, okay, right now I'm doing this. Okay, I'm going to go over here and do this. You're right. Yes. And I tripped and fell so many times with that. There was a lot of pressure. Um, and, and people use the phrase all the time work life balance. And there was always a lot of pressure for me to find work life balance. Pressure from colleagues, pressure from family members, pressure everywhere. And I, so I would set out to do that and I would fail. And what I realized is I am naturally a very low boundary person. Mm. So for me to try to put in artificial sort of high boundaries, this is when I work. This is when I mother. This is when I whatever. Of course I failed because mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not a high boundary person. So what I realized was, well, what works for me is not going to be what works for everyone else. And once I was comfortable being honest with myself about that, I just started to integrate it. So my mm-hmm. children know that at sometimes at, you know, 8 p.m. I'm working on a presentation, but at 11 a.m. I was making their doctor's appointment or I was checking in on their homework. And it's just I have to be a little more fluid with it mm-hmm. to succeed. Um, again, I just kept tripping over the fences I would set up. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. And it makes a lot of sense when you describe it like that. You know, Having a role as a mother and a successful executive with a demanding job and career, um, that there has to be fluidity. You, you're not going to be doing one thing all the time, um, and then you just have to do what needs to be done. I'll tell a quick story here. Uh, my daughter was, I think, in first or second grade, and my husband got a call from the school and said that my daughter was... Uh, in the school, and since she hadn't sent her picture money in, <laughs> that she couldn't have her picture taken. Um, and can you, you know, drop by and drop off her picture money? So I was in Dayton. I may have been meeting on a Miller Valentine deal for all I know, right? <laughs> right? So I had to come back to Cincinnati. I was driving like a bat out of hell uh, with the money, you know, and. You know, I was like, I was telling my husband, just tell him to take the photograph. I'll get the money to him, right? You know, I mean, oh, no, we have to have the money before. So I ran into that school, you know, and my, um, I was walking up the steps. My my kids still 
teased me about this. It was October. There was a woman walking down the steps that looked so relaxed, and she had this pumpkin sweater on, right? She was all into the whole <laughs> Halloween thing. I am literally sweating, you know, running up these steps to bring this picture money in to my daughter. And and she said, hello, how are you? You know, I thought she's so relaxed. <laughs> I brought this money and, and my daughter got her picture taken. She was had been crying because she didn't have the picture money, right? Because that's what we do as parents. I screwed up. We screwed up. We didn't send the picture money in, but um, it all comes together. She's perfectly functional, my daughter, today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they survive. I, I'm probably too honest about it with my children, but I just try to tell them, no, you're right. I did. I forgot to do that. And now we're going to send a teacher an email to the teacher and we're right. going to fix it. And your mother is um, terribly imperfect. Yes, <laughs> they are. But Welcome they, to the human experience. Right. But, you know, you they know you love them. They know they come from stability and you're going to be there when, you know, they need you. And, uh, um, I have uh, spent a lot of my time in my career just, I commuted from Dayton to Cincinnati for years, a long commute, get at my desk at 8.30, and the guys were already in there reading the Wall Street, drinking coffee, right? So they they had they did not have working wives. The guys in the office had women that were number one on, on call with the kids, number, you know, didn't work outside the home. And that was the same way at Miller Valentine. Right. I mean, you, sure. know, you had a lot Absolutely. of men that didn't have wives that work. And so I think it, on one hand, we have to like, I don't know, a lot of a lot of years I diminished all the responsibilities I had and what I was taking care of and wasn't really honest about, hey, I've got this or what, just to kind of, you know, not talk about it because I know you're not dealing with that and you may not, you may think I'm not committed. Right. Did you Correct. have that experience? Well, and you also don't want that to be, um, you don't want to be treated differently. No, right, you're trying so hard to to fit yes. and to be one of them, and and I'm very competitive by nature. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you are as well. Yes. And so when you get to the office and someone's already been there for two hours, and and when your mo is to just sort of outwork everyone around you to succeed, mm -hmm. you feel a little bit behind, right? Yeah. And so. Yeah. I don't want to share that 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 actually is spit up on my shoulder and or, you know, <laughs> flour on my pants from the cookies I made this morning and rushed <laughs> to the school. Um, there were some things you wanted to to keep hidden. And and I think I think that probably wasn't the best approach I took, right? To sort of hide that because what I've learned um by tripping and falling or mm -hmm. or or struggling is that if I had just been confident enough to be authentically me at that time, it was okay that it was spit up on my shoulder. Heck, they probably smelled it, right? So <laughs> it was okay that I had rushed to make cookies or did my makeup in the car that morning because that was my experience. That's what drove me. That's who I was every day. And I think if if I had probably been more confident in that space, it would have been easier to accept mm -hmm. it because it wasn't me coming at it from a complaining standpoint or that, gosh, look what I've handled over the last two hours, you know, while, you know, presumably you were reading your newspaper or right. whatever. It wasn't it wasn't coming from a complaining standpoint. It's just th these are our experiences and they are different. But mm -hmm. that's what that's what makes for the better team. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what I see now. But yeah. at the time, I don't know about you, I felt like if I said, okay, you know, I've got this doctor's appointment for my child, it'll, I've got to do this or that, 
they're going, I was afraid they were going to judge me that I was not committed, that, <laughs> that I had these responsibilities, right? That's why I wasn't fully transparent and saying, here's what I'm doing, guys, right? Absolutely. So if you give advice to women now, I mean, would you do anything differently back then, knowing that you might be judged in that way? I'm not sure I would if I'm being totally honest. I yeah. think I I think I would do it exactly how I did it given the context then, right? I remember saying once I was um hadn't returned a phone call. I had a sick 2-year-old, right? And I was mm-hmm. rushing to do something and um my boss at the time said to me, "Well, you'll just need to bring him to the office then." And I thought, um actually no. He he needs to be but it, but I but I received that, right? I, what I heard was, um, I don't deal with those issues, right? Yeah. And I actually don't want to hear that you're dealing with those issues, right? That's so, right. I, you know, gosh, at the time, I don't think I would have done anything differently. Mm-hmm. What I'm hopeful about is that that continues to evolve. And I think it does. I wish one, I'd had the confidence to sort of be the the authentic Elizabeth at the time, but also the opportunity for that to have been received and accepted. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're at a point in our careers now where, you know, and your kids are teenagers, mine are 34 and 28, but, um, you know, we're at a point now where what are they going to do? You know, we're, we're ahead in the company. So, <laughs> you know, it's like that back then we were still kind of climbing the ladder. Um, but And know. trying to be seen for being, um, right, the best person for the job. Right. Or trying to be seen for being driven and smart and sort of aspirational. Mm-hmm. And one we of the guys. You didn't want to be seen, right? One of the guys. One right? of the we guys. spoke cigars. And, oh. Yeah. Haven't yes. done that in a while. <laughs> you know, um, I have a phrase about that. And yes, I did in private practice, particularly in Washington, smoke plenty of cigars and, <laughs> and try to hang with the... You know, I, I can't drink as much as you, right? You're, you know, yeah. just sort of biologically. Yeah, they're <laughs> if I, bigger. You if know, hanging with the guys that are bigger. Um, my my phrase now is, you know, every time I did, I feel like I woke up the next morning wondering where the cat was that had slept in my mouth. It's such a horrible <laughs> feeling. Um, or waking up the the pillows pounding. Why is the pillow pounding? Like, what? You know, oh, that's my head. Yes, I remember. <laughs> Trying to keep up with the guys drinking. No, it's not the not good. But we don't have to do that today, right? We to do not successful. have to do that right. today to be successful, which is right. fantastic. Yeah. Many of the women I've hosted in this podcast had um, pretty pretty strong parental support as children, uh, which has certainly been an advantage for them. Um, and you did not. Your, your background, your childhood, uh, you learned early on that you couldn't always depend on others, uh, which I think has contributed to you being very strong, independent, and um, having a thick skin. Talk about that. Talk about where you grew up and so forth. Sure. So I grew up in a tiny little town called Nitro, West Virginia. Um, Nitro. Nitro. And it's funny. So when people tell me they've seen or been through Nitro, it's always on their way to the Greenbrier, which I find fascinating <laughs> because if, if forget geographically for a minute, but if, if the Greenbrier is New York, Nitro is, you know, sort of L.A. as far as how many worlds they are apart. Yes. Um, but. But it's funny. So, no, I grew up in Nitro, West Virginia. I was raised by a, a single mother who had, um, you know, endured quite a bit of uh, personal tragedy on her own. And so she mm. had a, a difficult time. So I did learn a very early that um, you said it well, that you can't always depend on others. And so you've got to figure out how to 
you got to figure out how to survive and you've got to figure out how to thrive. And I, I was blessed that I sort of came out. Um, I'm a born fighter, my father mm-hmm. would tell you. Yep. Um, he said I'd fight a bobcat for a buzzsaw. So <laughs> you can take a moment to figure out what that means. But I think we, I think we know that. I get it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. So I was blessed to, to come out a fighter. And it did serve me very well in childhood and beyond and just sort of getting out of where I was to, to get to law school, really, right, to get to college and to get to law school. I think I learned um, maybe too late in life that uh, some of those uh, coping mechanisms I developed or some of those strategies I had developed for survival as a child um, weren't always going to serve me well. Um, now that I'm, I was in a stable situation, right? I was on my own. I was in command of my life. I remember it's probably been four or five years ago now. A good friend of mine gave me a book. And I had some time over the holidays to read it. And I'm not a very emotional person, Susan, but I was reading this book and found myself crying. There's a, a statement in it, and I'll misquote it, but it, it the author had also realized um, at a point in his life that the... Um, Can you the, tell us the book? Sure. Um, I try to hide it because I don't want anyone to think that I'm sort of aligning myself exactly with that experience or with that book. But it was given to me because of where I grew up, um, mm-hmm. Till Billy Elegy. Yes, I've read it. So I, there's a, a portion of that book where the author realizes that the coping mechanisms he had developed to survive his childhood. And again, I'm not comparing our childhoods. I'm trying to compare the, my experience that day yes, when I read the book. Right. That those coping mechanisms, those survival skills were no longer useful to him mm. because you can't, you can't sort of throw a stone at every barking dog you see, right? And so my mm-hmm. the um, center in my brain that's responsible for fight or flight is yes. overactive. And I yes. think it's true for a lot of folks that had um, – you know, maybe everybody, not everyone's, not every, no one's childhood is fully functional, right? So no. it's very true. So I, I was sort of convicted by that statement. And I remember tears coming down because I was still facing everything in my life as if it was the next battle that had to be mm. fought and won, which wasn't going to serve me well as I went into strategic planning at Miller Valentine with, you know, my eyes on the the CEO role. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't it doesn't serve me well as a mother, right? It didn't serve me well as an ex-wife and all yeah. of those things I needed. So it was um how did you let me ask you uh, let me ask you about that. So you say that that background, that fight or flight, that battle uh, and you quoted Winston Churchill, which I wrote it down, who Winston Churchill said, you will never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. And I, I understand this because I'm a bit like this and I've been like this and it has not always served me well. So tell me what you've learned about how you grew up, how you approach things and how you had to adjust in, in these roles. So... I've learned that I am, um, it's a pretty visceral instant reaction. Yes. The fight or flight is in me. And fight is more common than flight. And that is true. I have a pretty um, sensitive startle response. Me too. <laughs> I do too. That is interesting you say that. And I if think there's that... a loud noise, it's like you're you're jumping up and everybody's like, what's going on, Susan? <laughs> right. And so, you know. I don't like it, but... <laughs> I've learned that just as we, you know, use strategic planning, um, 
as an example, or, or you can go back and, and look at the, the recession in, you know, 2008 to 2010, while we were, you know, the the fight response at that point is critical, right? And right. the fact that I'm not easily shaken yes. was critical and served me well. But when mm-hmm. you're in a moment or a time of calm, I'm not sure there's ever a time of calm in business, but when you're outside of crisis mode, yes, that approach isn't going to serve you well. It's not going to serve you well in meetings. It's not going to serve you well in relationships. It's not going to serve you well as you're trying to um, kind of be the even-keeled leader that sees into the Mm -hmm. future and that brings folks along with you. And uh, my children have probably been um, as instrumental as anybody in pointing this out to me. Yes. My 17-year-old daughter will look at me and say, not everything is a crisis, mom. Yeah. And it takes me a minute. Well, she grew up very different. She's growing up very differently than I did. Thank right? God, right? Right. Yeah. And, and great for her and her yeah. children will too. Right? Yes. So that's right. fantastic. Break the cycle. Um, right. But it's it's really taken me. I have to take the time. Now that, listen, Susan, the visceral reactions, the startle responses, those things, I don't know how you modify or change those things. Maybe they just take more time. <laughs> but it, it my children are quick to point it out. Um my colleagues can too. I have two wonderful business partners that, you know, understand very much where I came from and who I am and can say, okay, yeah, we're good. I've heard it said you cannot know yourself by yourself. Correct. Yes. <laughs> Other people need to show you that mirror. Yeah. And children are great at it, by the way. <laughs> yes. Just when I think I'm kind of cool, you know, my, my kids no, they will, can cut you mom, out. you know, stop, you know, um, and they... And there's a part of me that wants to pretend that I'm different than that. But it sounds like for you, and and it's been that way for me as I've gotten older and I've mellowed out a bit, that I need need something to come in and remind me that I'm not in a battle that I need to win. I'm not in a crisis situation where I'm against you, I need to win this over, you know, and to really stop. And it's impulsive. And you got to have something to stop it. Mm-hmm. What do you do to do that? <laughs> I work out a lot. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Give me more tips. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, no, I do. And I, listen, I think what the most important part about it is, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of day you're having or what kind of moment you're having. You have to know what kind of day you're having yeah. or what kind of moment you're having. You just have to be aware. You just yes. have to take the moment to say, Listen, this today's going to be a tough one, so that'll be an extra mile or two or an extra yeah. few minutes lifting weights or whatever yeah. it's going to be because I know that helps me calm down and helps mm-hmm. me find my center and it's right. it's important. Yes. Um someone once asked me, you know, do you, <laughs> you're pretty high energy, you're pretty intense. Are you medicated? Do you take medication? I said, I "Do, a black coffee in the morning and red wine at night." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's funny. Um, you know, I there are some things I do for, you know, you want to call it maintenance or just uh, managing those uh, that overactive center of my mm-hmm. brain. And it is it's it's um, the working out, the being committed to just sort of that's an outlet for me. Mm-hmm. Right. I need routine. Yeah, I Sleep. do too. It helps. Sleep good helps. Food. Yes. Good food, <laughs> exercise. There's no substitute. And I didn't do that for many years. Right. I used to weigh over 200 pounds. Oh, Susan, I've read your story. I mean, yeah. You, I hope you feel phenomenal because you I look do. phenomenal. I, I look, uh, well, I don't know about, you thank you. You look fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm fighting the aging thing. But um, 
yeah, I just decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. And I, I really was using food to, you know, help me manage the stress of this business we're in, you know, and I just decided to stop doing that. And now I feel great. I'm very clear. My mind is clear and I can feel like I can manage better. I'm a better person all the way around. So it's we have to prioritize self-care. And I think as women, it's probably very low on our list. And Mm -hmm. I had a friend once say to me, so would you ignore that if it were your daughter? You know, Mm. sort of whatever ailment or ache or pain or concern I had. And I thought, absolutely not. I would have been at the Cleveland Clinic by now if this were my daughter. Right. And it's it's that concept of, you know, kind of put your own oxygen mask on first. Right. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves for a lot of reasons. Um, but mostly it's to be healthy uh, despite the fact that a lot is expected of us every day, you know. Uh, I want to talk about that time at Miller Valentine between 2008, 2010, 10 or 11 in commercial real estate, it was one of the toughest times. I've been had a career of 41 years. It was one of the toughest times I've been through. And uh, there were huge shifts in our economy, huge shifts in our market and the national economy, declines in the market. Uh, commercial real estate values plummeted around 40% of their original value. Uh, Miller Valentine had debt outstanding with a number of commercial banks, which was greater than the value of the properties at the time. And uh, banks were doing with Miller Valentine like they were doing with a lot of my clients, uh, where they were coming to them and saying, We just did a new appraisal. You need to pay this loan down. Now, if you've got, you know, a number of properties and all of these banks are coming to you saying, You need to pay this loan down. You know, no company has the cash resources to do that. So um, Miller Valentine, you know, as a company did really, I, the story is incredible, you know, to say, okay, banks, uh, we, we need to all work together because we're all on this ship. And uh, if, if we don't all keep these plugged here, we're, we're all going to sink if that's what you want. But if you, we all work together, and some of them were better than others uh, <laughs> to work with, uh, we can we can come out of this after time. So it was a very difficult time in the company, I know. And Mike Green said about you, which you said about yourself, it's really hard to ruffle <laughs> Elizabeth Mangan, right? So tell me tell me about that time and tell me how you handled it and and what you learned during that time. Sure. So I joined Miller Valentine in two thousand eight. So it was sort of right before. Yes, right. Actually, I think it was right before Lehman Brothers failed. I joined, um, and I was hired as part of an acquisition they did of a small retail developer. And and for that company, I was sort of a jack of all trades, so to speak. I was the lawyer there, but I was also a real estate developer doing some retail mm-hmm. work. <laughs> that was fun in two thousand eight. But yeah. yeah. Um, I was sort of a, it was a small company, so I was a jack of all trades. And when when we were acquired, Miller Valentine was of the mindset that, you know, we're really not looking for an in-house lawyer. So I'm not sure about this Elizabeth cat, but okay, she can come over and we'll see about it, right? Right. So soon thereafter, uh, the music sort of stopped. And I, and I believe it was Mike Green at the time that said, wait, isn't there a lawyer downstairs? <laughs> do, I, do I have one of What's those? What's her name? What's her name, right? <laughs> and so, um, because I didn't know him well and, and hadn't worked with him much. And so he sort of said, hey, uh, we've got this ahead of us. Because to your point, and, you know, I think uh, 
Miller Valentine was getting the calls about making the the right sizing payments, and they were making the right sizing payments. I think nobody knew at the time that, oh, this wasn't going to end, right? This wasn't the only call you were going to get. And so, to your right. point, it it um, it snowballs, and at some point, nobody's got the resources to do that. And even if they did, it wouldn't have been a wise use of resources. And so. Uh, Mike Green's vision to in how to work with the lenders is something I learned so much from. Mm-hmm. To see how he had a unique way of sort of seeing around the corner, right, and sort of understanding. Um, you have to you have to put yourself into the other person's shoes yes. to understand sort of where they're coming from. What right. are their um, hot buttons. What is it they really want at the end of the day? And I learned a lot by watching him do that. I think the value I provided to him was this whole, he said to you, you know, Elizabeth Mangan is hard to rattle. Um, you know, it's to me, just given my previous, you know, 40 years or whatever, I wasn't afraid. That's easy to say. My wealth wasn't wrapped up in all of the, sure um, of the projects and all, but at the end of the day, I thrive in crisis. Yep, it's difficult too. to rattle me, right? And mm-hmm. so I I really treated it as a learning experience and learned. I mean, you learn so much about the lenders and all, but the lenders were learning about themselves. Yes. And, right? We all They're were. Like, they want to know what the other banks are doing. What are the right? other like, banks doing? Hey, they what care. are they saying about, you know? So, and what we learned is that the lenders cared very much more about what the other what their peers were doing versus what Miller Valentine was doing, mm-hmm. right? Because anybody at any given time had the power to shift the direction and shift yes. the game. Any of the lenders, when you have, you know, we had so many projects in development or even stabilized assets, right? That we were were mm-hmm. working on that you find you learn very quickly. And I think Mike Green had a unique ability to see this before I did that they cared very much more about each other than they did about us. And so approaching it in that way. And we were also blessed that we had a good reputation yes. of doing what we said we were going to do yes. and honoring our obligations. And that was very important during that time period. Yes. I'm not sure all developers um, were as as lucky, right? So the, They weren't, and they didn't handle themselves well. Some, some right. didn't. Uh, but you guys did. I mean, I know that you took some debt back and said, look, we're, we're going to pay. Here it is. We're going to pay this off, and everybody's going to get paid back. Yeah, so I would say the approach um, that we took was if, if you know, let's call it an operating, operating line of credit or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when the, the lender was making a bet on us and on the company, we felt very strongly that that was to be completely paid back. Mm-hmm. You made a bet, right. and we're we're not going to let you lose on that. When the lend, when when the you were working with lenders, and you were both sort of making a bet on a real estate investment, and the values were changing. I mean, that was a different approach, mm-hmm. but we were very transparent um, about that in dealing with the lenders, and I think they really appreciated mm-hmm. uh, the approach. And in fact, we do business today with lenders that were part of our restructuring right. and part of those changes, and I think that speaks for itself. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. Well, congratulations in coming out of that. It could have gone the other way if you didn't have the people in there that were you know the strategic that you know you're part of Mm -hmm. that Mike Green saying look let's let's look at it from their standpoint and make sure we understand you know living in their shoes kind of thing so uh, yeah it was a phenomenal opportunity for me to really learn our business Mm -hmm. from that perspective the good bad and the ugly because you don't always see the ugly right you got to be 
right in front of it. And mm -hmm. I think also, um, I think that experience with Mike and the leadership team at the time was a very critical part of me becoming the CEO. Mm -hmm. I think I wouldn't have been seen absent necessarily. I wouldn't have necessarily been seen mm -hmm. or my skills sort of wouldn't have been, my strengths wouldn't have been highlighted absent that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it was tough and it was, you know, 18 hours a day for 18 months or whatever. Oh my God. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about our business. And I think it gave um, the leadership the opportunity to say, oh, okay, mm -hmm. got it, yeah. you know? And, and it's look, Elizabeth's been through it. She understands our business. And, you know, just a couple of things that people have said about you. Uh, Angie Gill said, I love working with Elizabeth. She's got a big heart. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Goodwin said, Elizabeth's a hard worker. She's smart. She's a good negotiator. So uh, you developed a reputation there that, uh, you know, where it's like, okay, Bill, Bill Cruel wants to step back and retire. Who's the person? It's Elizabeth. So, yeah, it's really cool. Um, so, yeah, it was a time. It was a time. And, uh, you know, we saw it. And uh, nobody really, people can say they saw that coming, you know, with with the residential mortgages and, the, you know, and all this. And nobody really saw that coming. The last quarter of 2008 was something we'll never see again, I think. And then the year 2009, um, you know, I had my own company and we were just like doing things like selling, you know, helping with tax credits and um, consulting and things just to cover our uh, expenses. Didn't let anybody go, you know. Right. Uh, but 2010, about September or so, we started to see the market come back. That's what we saw, and you probably did too. And, and values yeah. have recovered more, you know, but we didn't see it at the time, you know, what was going to happen. No, absolutely. And I don't, anyone yeah. who said they saw that, I mean, I'm sure there's an economist somewhere, but that was very, it, it, even if you saw it, I don't think you understood the duration, right? And how long. The magnitude. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The and the, the long-term impacts. And, you know, some of the long-term impacts have been good, right? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody approaches investments differently, mm -hmm. right? The approach um, sort of nobody is uh, financing at 100% and nobody believes the values always go up, right? And right. I think those are two really good lessons. There's a lot more caution in things uh, that, that banks are showing and life companies we work with, a lot more uh, caution and it's not going to be rosy and rents are not necessarily all going to go up. We have to manage, you know, and be conservative. So that is still going on as a result of that time. But um yeah, I just see a really strong um, self-awareness in you um, that you really you really get yourself. You really understand who you are. And uh, I admire Thanks. that. Thank yeah. you. I, I think it took – that takes time and, and energy, but what it really takes is uh, honesty. Mm-hmm. Honesty with yourself, right? And honesty absolutely. with others. Like, here's who I am, you know? Here's who I am, and I'm not ashamed of that. Mm -hmm. And – you know, I try to surround myself with, I always say, gosh, I just make sure that everyone around me is a lot smarter than I am. And that's probably not fair or right to say, but I do make sure that everyone around me, um, that we have complementary strengths and that I surround myself with folks that have different levels or areas of expertise, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, that we all bring something different to the table. And I think that's really important, but you can't do that until you're honest with yourself about what you bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And as you said, that also takes reflections from others. 
Yes. You know, you can have a, a skewed view of of yourself, right? We all have. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Right. <laughs> right. But to have folks that are close to you to check that for you, so to speak. Check it for you. And you have to be open minded to accept it as the truth. You have to. To li- you have to listen. Listen and accept it and not say, no, you're wrong. That's not how who I am. You have to accept it and change. And I think that's what I've learned, you know, that uh, you don't have to fight everything. You don't have to throw dogs, every every dog, throw throw rocks at them, you know. And so it's it's taken a lot of mistakes for me, you know, a lot of mistakes in the way I've come across to people. And my energy, the intensity, I underestimate that a lot. Yes. I don't know about you. <laughs> yes, you don't understand the impact you might be having on yes. somebody that intended or not, right? You might not be yeah. fully aware. Yeah. Listen, I think this comes with age and maturity, and you and I have talked about it, and mm-hmm. it's a work in progress. But you have to stop fearing judgment. Yes, that's good. And I I hope for my children, and in particular my daughters, all the time that um, – you can't live in fear of that. The the quicker and the quicker you can become honest with yourself and open about who you are and own it and not fear that someone else doesn't appreciate it or is going to sit in judgment of it. I just try to realize if someone is going to judge me, they're probably not someone that I'm going to want to spend a lot of time with anyway. It's so true. Or not someone who's invested in my success. Right. Yeah. Um, so move on, right? right? That's very hard to do. It's hard to do at my age, and it's certainly hard to do as a teenager. I wasn't able to. But. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much focus as a teenager on how you look, you know, and how you behave. And, uh, you know, we're socialized back then that the guys, you know, don't let them think that you're smarter than them. Don't let them think that you're a better <laughs> athlete than them, you know. So Defer, uh, defer, defer. Defer, you know, whatever you think, whatever you say. And you know, that's uh, those aren't messages we want to pass along, you know, to our daughters or to the women that listen to this podcast. Absolutely not. So um, any closing comments about, uh, I know we talked about uh, women that speak up in meetings on things and guys take credit and talked about people that when you were, when you started uh, Miller Valentine heading heading the company, having the lead position, it's like, oh, she qualified, you know, which men don't go through this, right? So what advice would you give to young women as they're starting their careers in this industry? Particularly in this industry, right? (laughs) Walk away. (laughs) No, not at all. First of all, I would say, please come on in. The water's fine. Yes. Um, You know, I was looking at some statistics the other day, and I think the NAWIC says that 1.8% of um, positions in the construction industry are filled by women, and it just, oh, no, gosh, this right. is such a great industry, whether you're looking at commercial real estate or construction specifically. And I'm very excited because we do a we have a pretty robust co-op program yes. where we get students from colleges in the southeast and here. And mm-hmm. this spring, uh, four out of five of our co-ops are females. Okay. Right, which is you know, I don't think obviously we're we're you know open minded and excited about hiring practices. But what I think it speaks to, which is exciting, is that more women understand the opportunities that are available in the construction industry, right? And and that are are going through STEM programs or whatever, and yes. realizing you know engineering could really work for me, or project management could really work for me. So that's very exciting. So the advice I would give to them is. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. (laughs) You are welcome, and we are excited. And your involvement in this industry 
produces better outcomes at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, the diversity of thought and experience and um, approach is just how the best thing you could do for your teams, the best thing you could do for your customers. Yes. So do not give up. You know, I I said I'd fight a bobcat for a buzzsaw. It's true. You got to be thoughtful around that, though. There are some times that the best fight is to not fight. Yes. So be thoughtful about what you want to persist through. Be thoughtful about um, how, you know, where your resilience comes from. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I've I've taken on some fights, and Susan, I'm sure you have too. Where mm-hmm. I look back now and think, you know, the better approach there might have been to to sidestep that one. Walk right? away. Walk away. Sometimes that's the best mm-hmm. answer. Um, sometimes my silence is more effective than my <laughs> right. <laughs> than yes. my bark, so right. to speak. If we're quiet, but, something's wrong, right? right? Somebody is like, "What's going on, Susan? You're not. You're quiet. You know." But so. be thoughtful about what you're persisting through. So, so yes, it takes a lot of hard work, and I don't think that's gender specific, right? To mm-hmm. to that's right. to thrive right now, just you know, work de- uh, work hard, know your core, and know what your strengths are going to be, so that you can really. Because that's when you win, right? If mm-hmm. your passion and your strength is aligned with what you're doing every day, that's when you'll shine. That's yes. when you'll succeed. So try to be honest about that. And then thoughtful about what you persist through. Mm. It's, the answer is not to plow through everything to win at the end of the day. You've got to be thoughtful about mm, that is the right one to take on. That mm-hmm. one isn't. Right. Right? Yeah. My husband has said to me more than once, uh, if you do that, you're going to win the battle, but you'll lose the, lose war, the war, right? right? You've heard that before. Absolutely. Sometimes so, the best fight you win is the one you didn't take on. To walk away from and be at peace with it and not let it live in you as a hairball. Like, oh, okay, that guy was, you know, just like, let it go. Be okay. at peace. I'm releasing you to the universe. <laughs> right. <laughs> We've moved on. There's <laughs> a lot of freedom in that. So. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me today. It's been delightful to get to know you, and I'm just so proud to call you a sister in this industry and uh, really enjoyed getting to know you, and congratulations on your success. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate uh, this podcast. This is awesome. Thank you. thanks, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.